Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Amen? This is all my hope and peace, and this is all my righteousness. What? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's good to be in the house of the Lord today with you. It's a joy to be back and teaching and, and look forward to our time of fellowship around the table. As we begin to prepare our hearts, you've already been doing that, no doubt, as Jacob has led us in those songs to help us remember the cost of our salvation and the joy it is to see our Savior someday in glory and know that he has paid that price. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. <clears throat> Preserve our time today, turn to First Timothy chapter 5. It's our joy to begin this new section and as our habit we, we're going to really introduce it and, and get the feel of the text and the direction the letter's going and then we'll worship our, in, uh, with our time around the table. Let's pick up at verse 1, we'll read down through verse 16. Again, you're going to get the sense of the letter as, as Paul pins the letter. He knows that this is going to be read and commented on in the, in, uh, the services. It's his desire for that to happen, and so uh, you get that sense as Paul pins this section in chapter 5, verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers. Verse 2, the older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. Verse 4, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Verse 5, now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Verse 6, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Verse 7, prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Verse 10, having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Verse 11, but refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desire in disregard of Christ, they want to get married. Thus, verse 12, incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Verse 13, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies take, talking about things not proper to mention. Verse 14, therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Verse 15, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Verse 16, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Stop right there. Chessboard that comes to life, like in Alice in Wonderland or Harry Potter, is a scary thought. Robed bishops, liturgical headdresses, dealing out diagonal sin, armored knights on their steeds, charging at wild angles all over the board, dispatching surprised enemies. Mobile castles rushing down the lanes like a mountain of death, seemingly omnipotent kings and queens opposed to terminate those who venture too near, and, and you're just a lowly pawn, an inevitable casualty on the checkerboard 
battlefield. Chess, according to Lewis Carroll or J.K. Rowling, is the stuff of nightmares fit only for those who are the bravest of heart. And we have seen, as we've looked in 1 Timothy, that Timothy does not fit that description right now. He can't be described as the bravest of heart. I think time, and we would already looked at that, will reveal that Timothy has what it takes to lead the church and to stick with it and do what he's supposed to do. And it's not surprising, though, to these, in this real-life chessboard in Ephesus that he's struggling with these formidable figures swirling around. He doesn't know who's coming at him next. Elders looking down on this young, uncalled, inexperienced pastor. Some of these elders have sinned against their own consciousness and shipwrecked their faith. Men like 1 Timothy 1.20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who had been handed over to Satan so they would be taught not to blaspheme. In other words, Paul had to put them out of the church. They likely had many followers who didn't take kindly to this interloper, Timothy. And Philetus, who was part of this group in 2 Timothy 2.17, says, participated in gossip and slander against Paul and against Timothy. The knights and bishops swinging their swords and taking captive the easily deceived. So there were many who followed along on all this deception. Along with the substitute for solid teaching, Paul calls what they were doing godless myths, genealogies, old wives' tales, and controversies which had become the norm instead of the aberration. And their salvation was no salvation at all. They didn't deliver anyone. And adding to all that confusion, of course, were the queens and their female devotees, whom Paul termed weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desire, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, 2 Timothy 3, 6 and 7. They had been involved in subverting the church order. They had, in effect, replaced those who were elders with themselves. And so the effect for Timothy was much probably like a live chessboard. He never knew who was going to come next. They were all bigger than life. They all had established patterns, and he didn't know what they were. And so ministry had become increasingly out of shape due to weak management. It was losing its first love, as we saw in Revelation 3. The main things like the gospel and the mission were becoming increasingly marginalized, and just good things like the care of widows and other things was becoming the main thing. And Timothy was being called to say some hard things, and some rebukes were going to be required, and uncalled and unwelcome Timothy was ready to run from this wonderland of out-of-place and errant theology and intimidating looks of the board set against him. And, and so in light of the instruction we just studied, where Paul has given him really the essentials of ministerial survival, as we saw in chapter 4 and verse 11 and following, number one, preaching what God, uh, Paul had handed down, number two, a lifestyle stamped by godliness, and number three, teaching correctly and using the reading to comment. And number four, serving inside your gifting. And number five, being diligent. Paul then goes on now that he has this survival, the survival skills. He goes on and, and helps him in further dealing with the delicate issue of these hard things and widows in the church. Now, as you think about this and you think about the context of this, there are a lot of words that are used in the Bible to describe the church. A body is very common. We've looked at it numerous times. A holy nation. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, uh, Peter names off a few of them for us in a row. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's your identity, a royal priesthood, uh, people of God's own possession sons and daughters, branches off the true vine, a flock. Uh, another word that really comes into play here is the word family. 
It's a very uh, common word. We've looked at it numerous times ourselves. If you've been in the Be the Church class, you know we've gone over all of these already with you. Family, Ephesians 2.19. You're no longer strangers and aliens. That's what we used to be before redemption, but now you're fellow citizens with the saints. There's another name for you, your identity. Fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You're in God's household. You're part of the family. 2 Corinthians 6.18 uh, the Lord says, I'll be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You're in God's household, part of the family. The redeemed are sons and daughters of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. That's what we were, slaves to sin. We don't have that anymore. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The closest possible, most endearing term we could refer to as refer to the one who created all things. We're adopted in, part of God's family. And for those of us who have happy murmurs of being raised in a Christian family, uh, the word has a lot of great associations. And for those who didn't have that privilege, there's always something that is wished for, knowing you missed out for some reason or another, but all the more desirous to have it and not repeat the mistakes of the past. Family is a really great word. It speaks of love. It speaks of closeness and care, and honesty, and one another's, and sacrifice, which really means it's just speaking of biblical love. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, and the general characteristic within the church as a family is that we would love one another. That's the new commandment Jesus gave to the church. Now what's interesting is, inside this body, inside this priesthood, inside this family, there's this element of family that isn't normally brought up, but it's necessary nonetheless. And that element is accountability. And part of accountability is confronting of sin. It's true in a family and it's true in a church. Where there's love, there is concern to deal with something that isn't right. That's just part of the responsibility of being in a family. I mean, no faithful parent would ever buy into this gentle parenting thing that seems so popular today, which isn't really new. It wouldn't be biblical parenting or biblical love to say, well, I'm not going to bring up anything evil about the actions of my children. I certainly want to want to confront my kids or correct them because, after all, they have to live their own life. That's not love. If you love your children, you're going to point out their sin. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 says, He who withholds his, his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. If you don't confront sin, you really hate your child. That's what the Bible says. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. We get our cues from the Lord about that. He corrects the son, the daughter in whom he delights. That's everywhere. It's just godliness. That's love. That's part of being in a family. And that's just the way it is. And, and the reason why we're looking at these words and these pictures and the scripture, that the scriptures give us is because the first two verses in our new chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, look there, says this. Do not sharply rebuke an older man. What's going to have to happen? He's going to have to rebuke an older man, but he's not to sharply do it, but rather appeal to him as a father, to younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And Paul uses all these family names. Why? Because you're part of a family. Same as your own biological family. You're in a family called the church, and you're part and parcel of that. And these are familiar terms to him, and they're familiar terms to us. Timothy was in a family in Ephesus, a family of the church. And and we've seen also, and also reviewed in our opening illustration, the family in Ephesus had some very serious sins. 
And over and over again, we've noticed how Paul points out some wrong doctrine and something or something wrong going on in public worship or some personal sinfulness. And just a few reminders in case you've forgotten, because now the rebuke has taken on shoe leather. See, Paul gives the letter to Timothy and says, this is to be read in the church, and then you're going to comment on it. But as he talks about these problems, Timothy's going to have to deal with them. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, Paul doesn't say, aside from the two that we just listed, uh, who all the other people are in this next verse, but we obviously know that there are people from all walks of life, male and female, who were not keeping faith and a good conscience. Guess who has to talk to them? Paul does, or Timothy does through Paul. And there were obviously men who were participating and leading in corporate prayer time because it says, uh, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So there's men who are participating and leading in corporate prayer time. They had anger issues and they're divisive. And Timothy's going to have to come and say, you, you can't participate in this anymore. In 1 Timothy 2.9, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly garments. Obviously, there were some women who were adorning themselves in immodest apparel, who were more concerned about their jewelry and their appearance on the outside than they were about their hearts, and guess who has to talk to them? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And some of them were obviously usurping, usurping the roles of men in leadership in the church, taking on the role of an elder and a teacher. And Paul tells Timothy, you're going to have to rebuke them. 1 Timothy 2.15, women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And so they're going to need to be reminded, and Timothy's going to have to do this, of God's priority for them to bear children and bring them up in godliness. And, and it just continues with each chapter. We get to chapter 3, and there must have been all kinds of problems in the current leadership of the church because Paul has to lay out the exact qualifications for those who are elders. Anything from drinking to all kinds of other bad testimonies in the community and in the church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, he, who, he must be, those who lead the church, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And the extra commentary there gives you a little cue that it's likely indicating this was at that time and certainly still a problem. Men in leadership that shouldn't be because they haven't demonstrated the ability to bring up godly children. And so Peter's, uh, Paul tells Timothy, you're going to have to confront this lack of discipline and the lack of godly leadership in the family and help them to avoid the catastrophic testimony and the chaos and the sorrow that undisciplined, ungodly children are going to bring to the home and bring into the church. And so it just continues. And chapter 4, there are gullible people being led astray by the doctrines of demons and, and thinking legalism and asceticism and self-made religion are the ways to godliness. And this is always the nature of church ministry. Watching over the church, helping the church, praying over the church, reproving, correcting, going privately, going with some witnesses, telling the church. This is always the case. See, remember Paul says, who's led into sin that I'm not upset about it? Who, who's weak that I'm not also worried about it? it? It was always on Paul's mind. He always had to do it. And so he's handing this off to Timothy and saying, Timothy, you're going to have to confront these issues. And guess what? It's not just for him because we know there's only one standard of godliness. So if Timothy models this, what has to happen? 
Everybody continues to be involved in this. In fact, if you're unsure about that, James chapter 5, verse 19, my brethren, James says, so he's talking to the church, to everyone, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that the one who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's one of the hardest things to do. Guess what? No elder wants to do it, and you don't want to do it either, right? That's a hard thing. When you see somebody erring, and you have to go and put your arm around them, and you have to say, hey, listen, this is not a good thing for you. This is where your chapter and verse, where you're erring from according to God's word, and you really need to turn back. Nobody wants to do that. People lose sleep over that. And yet this is a responsibility that's part of being in a family. Just like we have to do it with our own children, we have to do it inside the church. To go to someone and attempt to turn someone who's in error. But what we have to realize is, just in the context of this letter, for instance, when Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man to remain quiet, or, or in 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Listen, he's going to have to go to those who are wealthy. And in typical churches, those who are really wealthy are also typically the deacons. They're the ones who call all the shots and, and, and rule the roost. You don't want me to go because I'll take all my money with me. It's, it's never changes. It's always like that in the church. And so Timothy has to go and he has to say, listen, don't be conceited. Don't, don't hold your hope on, on wealth. But God's the one who gave it to you. It's not a sin to be wealthy. God, you wouldn't have anything if God didn't give it to you. Uh, he's given you all things to enjoy, but do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Somebody has to say that, see. Or 2 Timothy 2.14, solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. There are people wrangling about words. There's always people in the church that always want to argue about some small minutia, something they've got to pick on. It's always something that doesn't please them particularly. It says, instruct them not to wrangle about words. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody who is always a wrangler of words? That's not easy because they're pretty good at wrangling words. And guess what they'll do as soon as you get done? Or Titus chapter 3, verse 10, reject a factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such men are perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. Listen, factious men are really good at it. What does Titus have to do? Go to a factious man. That means somebody who's always stirring up trouble. They're always at the center of some problem, center of some gossip, center of some slander, something that doesn't please them personally. Their personal preference isn't being met, and they're always wrangling about it. You give them two warnings, and they're out. Have you ever tried to do that? That's not that much fun, I'll just tell you right now. Because they're pretty good at, at, at being factious. And, and all these and, and dozens more we didn't illustrate because we, this is what the letter is about. It's about pointing these things out that aren't what should be in the church because remember 1 Timothy 3.15, I'm writing this so that you'll know how to conduct yourself in the household of faith. So if it's not like it should be, then what has to happen? Then Timothy has to go and he has to say to somebody, hey, listen, Paul's not here. Timothy has to confront these things in the people who are doing him. So he gives Timothy some relational skills. That's what he's doing. And he's leading and rebuking. He's in a family. These are people that he knows. 
And it's likely going to be a powder keg, at least initially. Usually there's no way to avoid that because he's going to have to confront the factious man and he's going to have to confront women who are taking authority in the church and teaching men and thinking they should and the leader who has children who won't obey and the gossiper and the slanderer and the men who are ungodly and, and worldly who are attempting to stand up and lead the church in prayer and any number of those combinations and it can be a disaster sometimes. But Paul says, go about it like this and then he gives Timothy an approach that may help keep an unpleasant thing from becoming more unpleasant. So he says, don't sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. And then you can just read it in. Don't sharply rebuke a younger man, but regard him as a brother. Don't sharply rebuke an older woman, but regard her as a mother. Don't sharply rebuke a younger, younger woman, but look at them as sisters in all purity. There's obviously nothing in those two verses that says to Timothy, you're going to have to correct all these people. It doesn't say that directly. It just says, in your correcting... It's just obvious, and Timothy knew this, and it's implied. But he also knows how God feels about discipline, and we do too, don't we? And we know what the Scripture teaches, and we read numerous examples already this morning. He knew that how God felt about discipline. He knew what the Scriptures taught, and, and perhaps it was comforting to know these things for Timothy. And listen, this is lost in the church today, and I'd like you to turn, if you were, to Jeremiah 44. It's lost in the church. The first half is there, the encouraging and the lifting up and the bearing one another's burdens and, and the mutual accountability and the love and the meeting of immediate needs and all these things and the blessings and the praying with them and, and helping them. These are all wonderful parts of family. It's part of, I hope, your own family. It should have been if it wasn't and you can create that environment in your own family now and it is part of the family of Christ. The joy of affirmation and encouragement and strength and all of that very, very important part of the body of Christ, we look forward to that. But that's not it, see. What we have is the second half is not there, the rebuking and correcting and coming alongside and, and whatever. That's missing because people don't want that part. I don't want you to intrude in this area that's right around my life at all. I want to sit here and be affirmed and I want to walk out and feel good about myself and I don't want you to talk about anything that's going to make me feel uncomfortable. That's missing. But I want you to see some, some things here and I think it's helpful. It was really helpful to me to read this so I'm going to just share it with you. Jeremiah 44, if you're, if you're in a paper Bible, just go to Psalms, turn right five books, and you'll be there. Jeremiah 44, verse 1, he says, he says this. And, and Jeremiah, of course, a very difficult ministry, uh, having to do things that weren't fun. I mean, I'm, I'm reading Hosea right now in my own personal Bible reading. First chapter, what does it tell Hosea to do? Go and marry a woman from the harlotry. Go marry a prostitute and bring up children in harlotry. Why? So that Israel can see what I see when I look at them. Imagine the sorrow, imagine the heartache. And so uh, there's all kinds of things like this. So, you know, if you're thinking that, you know, perhaps these prophets' ministries are pretty cushy, like, like what we see the nowadays false prophets, cushy, not cushy. In a difficult time in Israel, here's what, um, here's what the Lord says. The word that came to Jeremiah for all the Jews living in the land of Egypt, uh, those who were living in Migdal, Tathanes, Memphis, and the land of Pathros, saying, this is what the Lord's saying to them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, verse 2, The God of Israel, you yourselves have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are in ruins and no one lives in them, verse 3, because of their wickedness which they committed so as to provoke me to anger by continuing to burn sacrifices and to serve other gods whom they had not known, neither they, you, nor your fathers. Now mark this. Mark this next section, verse 4. Speaking to his people. The ones who are now deported from the land, not living uh, in Jerusalem. Why? Because it's destroyed. He says, yet I sent you all my servants, the prophets, again and again, saying, 
Oh, do not do this abominable thing which I hate. Don't do it. Turn away from it. What is that? That's a family correcting parts of the family, right? That's the same exact idea. Don't do this. This is not what the Lord had designed for you. He didn't think about it. Your fathers didn't think about it. You've never known this before. Don't do this. And what's he say in verse 5? But they did not listen or incline their ears to turn from their wickedness so as not to burn sacrifices to other gods. Verse 6, therefore, my wrath and my anger were poured out and burned in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, so they have become a ruin and a desolation as it is to this day. Now I want to point out a couple things. We're going to move on. First of all, Jeremiah and other prophets were given the message. But who had the wrath? And I think you can see the, the sense of the passage sharply rebuking. You're bringing the message in patience and persistence, but not the wrath, okay? You're not bringing the wrath there. God brings the wrath. You bring the message. This is really driven home, I think, as you look, look, looked at to Ezekiel, two books to the right, Ezekiel 2, if you would. And uh, Jeremiah brought the message. God brings the wrath. And really, the story, really, of all the prophets, the prophets were told to go without any fear to someone in sin and just confront it. Just say what needs to be said and then let the Lord deal with them. Now, Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 3, again, uh, you get to hear what the Lord is saying, and it, it's kind of a snapshot that gives us an idea of how the Lord still feels about all of this. Okay, this hasn't changed. People who are called by His name, He wants them to be obedient. He desires for them to. He sends people to help them be obedient as an example, and then as the message, and all of that. So now look at Ezekiel 2, 3. He said, then He said to me, talking to Ezekiel, Son of man, I'm sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people, who have rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, thus saith the Lord God. So in other words, whatever I've told you to say, that's what it means, thus saith the Lord God. Whatever is written down now for us, that's what the Lord says. Not what I say, that's what the Lord says. Thus saith the Lord God. Verse 5, as for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house. Do you think they're rebellious? I mean, he's like said it like three times. They're obstinate, rebellious children. There's the family name again, see? Whether they listen or not, verse 5, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Verse 6, mark this. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. That does not sound that comfortable. I just got to say. You're going to have a hard time. Ezekiel, it's going to be difficult for you dealing with an obstinate house, an obstinate family, people who don't listen. Neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence. Kind of like that live checkerboard that Timothy's facing, right? They look ominous. They look like they can do things and they did do things to the prophets. For they are a rebellious house. Verse 7, but you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. And I, what I want you to get from that is this. It's not new for a family to fearlessly confront sin. It's not new for a leader to fearlessly confront sin. It's not new for you in James to see someone in sin and then go along and help them along to the path. See, It's part of the job as a leader. And we certainly see it with the apostles in the New Testament. We see it with the prophets for sure. The Lord says, I sent them over and over to you. We see it with the apostles in the New Testament. 
as the church is established. In fact, just a, a great example, everybody knows Peter with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. If there ever was a gauntlet thrown down that said the Lord doesn't like to be lied to, there it was, right? I want to make sure that you understand that the Lord understood what was going on there with those two. They both agreed to lie about what had been given. And it was under their command to give it or, or withhold it. They just lied about what they gave. And the Lord killed them both. And of course, as we move into the epistles themselves, or part reproof, part rebuke, part correction. And then Paul's instruction to the church in our study. So as the apostles are beginning to be martyred, as they are, as they are dying, the, this transfer of the leadership of the church is going to those who lead the church as elders and pastors. That falls on them. And in 2 Timothy 4.2, he says to them, preach the word, be ready in season, be ready out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. All those words, everything we've just got through seeing uh, in, in the Old Testament time, in the apostles' time, all still there with great patience and instruction. Yes, reprove. And we are to reprove. And that word means to bring a person to conviction of guilt. And we're to rebuke. That's to bring into sharp relief comparing what they do to the Scriptures. Clearly where you're wrong. That's what that means to rebuke somebody. This is what it says. This is what you're doing. Far apart. So both of those things are part of it. But we're to do that with an encouraging, strengthening patience and teaching. That's the issue. Titus chapter 1, verse 10 Paul tells this son in the faith, there are many rebellious men, not just a few, many empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. These are Jews who have purportedly come to faith, but they are rebellious. They're deceivers, empty talkers, so not really born again, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And then mark this in verse 13, that this testimony is true, and for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. You're going to have to be very, very firm. You can't just sit by and not do anything. You're not, it wasn't one of the options as T Titus led the church in Crete to just not do anything, not engage with those who were destroying the church, not engage with those who were in false doctrine, not engage with those who were contentious. That wasn't one of the options. He had to do it. And connected to this passage, turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Just see a few things. We won't spend a lot of time here, but I want to show it to you because we're going to be here in, in a number of months. But anyway, this is what's expected. So when he says, you know, teach the older men, teach the younger men, teach the older ladies, teach the younger ladies, here it is. Here's what you're supposed to teach them. In verse 2, he says in, in Titus 2, he says, um, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, Sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what's good. Verse 4, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kinds, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Do you catch that? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. In a family, in the church, in your own family, we do these things so that the word of God is not dishonored. It raises the bar higher than our own preferences or what we may think would be right and that doesn't fit our culture or whatever. Why do we have to teach these things? Why do we have to teach our men to be temperate? That's wineless, dignified, 
sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance? Why do we have to teach older women to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips? Why do we have to uh, confront that and not a drinker teaching what's good uh, so that they can encourage the young men? Why do we have to teach young women? We have to teach them to love their husbands and love their children and to be sensible and pure and keepers of the home and kind and subject to their own husbands. Why all of that? Why the family like that? Why the church family like that? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. So that when you go and you try to witness to someone and they look at your life and they see it's all out of order and everything's messed up, they're not going to listen to you, see? And they're going to say, well, you preach the word of God, but you don't live it. And when you don't live the word of God, you're trying to share with someone, the whole thing's a catastrophe. And just a few verses down in verse 11, look there. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, Here's another general instruction that has to go out. To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. Is that a surprise to anyone that part of the teaching has to include doing denying ungodliness? I mean, everyone is welcome to come to the church. That's obvious, right? Everyone's welcome. But are you welcome to stay right where you are? No, because we're going to teach the Word of God and it's going to teach you to what? To deny ungodliness. And that's not self-defined. That's pretty clearly defined in the Word of God. What's ungodly? You see? And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And live righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is what we're supposed to teach, see? And Christ came so that we would teach that. And that would be the main message. Zealous for good deeds. Which means by implication, maybe the deeds aren't good. But now we have to change our zealousness for things that are, see? And that's, that's just obvious, isn't it? I know it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me to teach it because I taught it to myself before you ever heard it. And I know it's uncomfortable for you to hear, but I know that part of the love that I have for you and you have for each other has got to include this. Or else it's not really love at all. You really hate each other. If you're willing to let each other go down paths that bring destruction and a tarnished testimony and the word of God being laughed at instead of regarded as true. It's what the church is supposed to look like. And those who lead it as elders are to help guide it along in these requirements. And there's only one standard of godliness, so they're doing it by example and everyone in the seats is doing it too. That's how the church works. It's a family. It's an example to everyone to do the one another's and help people live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. And that's the point of James chapter 5, verse 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, it's just everywhere, beloved. It's everywhere. That's just godliness. That's just love. That's just family. That's what it looks like. It has to contain that component. It's just the way that it is. And the reason why we're looking at these words and these pictures and the scriptures just give us this idea, this understanding that Timothy's going to have to speak to these people, see? The instruction comes in the letter, but it's going to have to have an outlet. And it's a whole bunch of different places. 
and ones that, as I've mentioned it to you, probably wouldn't want to be involved with. Scorpions you'll set on and thistles and thorns will go on your way. Listen, there's, that's a couple of serious landmines in all of that, right? And that's our introduction. It gives you the sense, see, of the family and what has to happen, what Timothy's going to have to say. It gives you an old idea of why he wants to flee that giant chessboard. He would rather not be around and watch all these people come racing towards him. He's going to have to confront them. And, and Paul just says to him, listen, do it. You have to do it. Don't do it sharply. The wrath belongs to the Lord. And you bring the message. And I think we can understand that as we move to the table. We, we do it all and we submit to it all and we help one another along in all these areas. Why? Because we're a family and this family is looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Are we looking forward to that? That's, that's, our, that's all of our hope, isn't it? We're looking to, for the blessed hope and appearing of the, of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. And he gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself for a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So that has to be part of the message. It's going to be illustrated here as Timothy deals with these people in Ephesus. But then it, it overflows into our own actions. We have to begin to include it. It might explain why we preach like we preach. It might explain perhaps why someone that you've just met here in the congregation has come alongside you and said, hey, uh, how about if I pray for you? Can I help you? Because this seems to be an area in your life you're struggling. See, that's what it's all about. That's a family. We're looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the God, of glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. What a joy that is to think about. And I mean, if there's anything that's a transition to the table, which is a remembrance of Christ's death until he appears, right? That's what we're looking forward to. So we're going to celebrate that right now. And I'd like you to pray with me if you would. Just bow with me as we make our transition to our time around the table. Heavenly Father, we are so looking forward to the appearing of your Son, our great God and Savior, who has come and given himself to redeem for himself a nation, a people of his own name, out of every lawless deed, and purify for himself a people of his own possession, part of your family. We're part of the family of you, Father. We can call you by the most intimate of terms because you love us that much and you gave your son to die for us and you adopted us in and set us on high and promised us an inheritance. And Father, we're so grateful for that. So as we move to this table which we celebrate in longing for your return, we desire that fellowship and closeness. Father, I pray that you begin to guide our own hearts, that we might be prepared to be at the table, that we might come in a way that's appropriate so that we might receive the benefit that you desire for us to have from it. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake. Amen. We're going to move into a time around the table. It is geared for those who are born again, those who've come to faith in Christ. I encourage you that if you do not know Christ as your Savior, this is not something you want to participate in, but don't leave today without letting us tell you about the good news of Christ and how he can redeem you, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of my favorite passages. 
Uh, at verse 3, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What a joy that is. That's the gospel, the good news. The redemption that comes that you were lost and now can be found. Your debt can be paid in full. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He leads the way to resurrection, conquering of death. He leads the way so that you can follow. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Wow, so marvelous. What a hope that is. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ that is coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Everybody gets the right names and the wrong names are taken away from everybody and all that needs to be fixed gets fixed. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Christ died, Christ rose, Christ is coming. And so today we follow the Lord's instructions to remember his death and his resurrection and his coming as we commune with one another here. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go to a city, to a certain man, and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near, I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover, just like they'd done it hundreds of times. And now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with 12 disciples. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. When he had taken the cup, he'd given thanks. He gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. And now everybody's eyes are on him. And all the times throughout all the ages that their families had taken the Passover, now they realized it wasn't ever about that. It was always about Jesus. And so the focus is on him now, and he's got the opportunity to give them some instructions in the taking of the elements of communion. And we're going to get that, because Paul said, I received this from the Lord. And so we're going to read some instructions that are very, very important as we come to the table. We always read it. It's always important. It always calls us back, because the world tends to sully us, and we have a difficult time saying no. And so this is a good way to remind ourselves how we have to come to the table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 as Paul receives this from the Lord, he says, therefore, as he talks to this wayward church, this rebellious church in Corinth, he says, you're taking the table. The problem is you're taking it in a way that isn't appropriate. And he says, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And that's a pretty serious charge, guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, sharing in the sins of those who crucify Christ. And so what's happening here is this. You're coming to the table and you're expecting one thing, communion, but you're not getting that. Because you're coming in a way, thinking you're okay, but you're not because you're coming in an unworthy manner. So what do we have to do? Verse 28, a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink the cup. You have to take a hard look at your life. An honest look at how you spend your time, what you think about, what you do. See, How does that align with what the Word of God says? That's the whole issue. You can't come being an open sin and take the table and expect to walk away. You won't get the blessing you think you're going to get. Instead, you'll get discipline. Now listen to what he says. For he who eat and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. It's all about what we do, see? 
For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. You might have noticed, he says to the church in Corinth, that some of you are struggling physically. There's some sickness, and there's some weakness, and there's some death. Because you're just a rebellious group, he said. You don't have to be that way, but this is how you're coming to the table. If we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. You can avoid the whole thing and get the benefit that's there for you if you take a hard look at yourself and ask for forgiveness. But when we are judged, he says, we're disciplined by the Lord, so we will not be condemned along with the world. So even, even in the judgment, we get to see the Lord in his family. He loves righteousness. He's not willing for us to continue in disobedience, and so he gives us the warning, and it's a fair warning. And on the other side, the blessing that comes from the table is yours. You come with the right heart attitude. And so we always say at, on communion days, we always want to be self-examining. We're going to take some time in a minute and have some quiet prayer before the Lord so we can take a hard look at ourselves and, and evaluate where we should be. So this has to do with coming to the table in an unworthy manner. But in order to avoid that, correctly evaluating your own actions, your own thoughts, and how you interact with people and, and your family and whatever it is. And uh, God is serious, so he expects discernment, which is why we find us here. So we're going to take a minute and just and pass out the bread element, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to read Isaiah, and then we're going to take some time in quiet prayer.
In Isaiah 53 is helpful to me in worship and, and especially around this time, so I share it with you today. Isaiah 53.3, the prophet talks about, even in the middle of his difficult ministry, he talks about Christ and prophesies his suffering and says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. It's always part of prophets and godly people. They own the sin of everybody. Recognize and participate in all of that. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray and each one has turned to his own way. All of us. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep that's silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to who the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. and He was with a rich man in his death because he'd done no violence. Or was there any deceit in his mouth? We bow with me and pray as we think about the bread element. Lord, we thank you today that we have an opportunity to come before you and to consider our own actions and the things, the actions of the body, as Paul instructed us through the Lord in, in the first Corinthians chapter 11. We recognize that we are identifying with the price for our salvation, and we don't want to come harboring sin and then also identify that in our sin, Christ has saved us. Which true, he saved us out of sin. He desires for us to be a holy bride. And he wants us to have fellowship with him. So he has said in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, faithful and just, to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's our desire to do that, Father. And particularly we're, th- we're, we're uh, to be thinking about as your son taught his disciples to pray that forgive us our debt as we forgive those who are indebted against us. Our prayers don't rise any higher than the ceiling if we won't forgive those who are around us because we've been forgiven an unpayable debt. So bring to our mind those things we hold, we've hold on to uh, with others and help us to forgive even now. As we take a few moments of silent time, Lord, just guide us by your Holy Spirit where our desire is to be so we'll walk before you with a clear conscience. Knowing we're redeemed, we haven't been cast away, but we wish to be in fellowship too, Father. So guide us. Father, you're so good. You're good to hear our prayers. So intent, even more as we come to prayer than we were as we started to have fellowship with you in this way. And we thank you for your broken body, the stripes by which we were healed. And we give you praise for that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians 11, 23 and 24, Paul said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me take the bread element
finish up our reading in Isaiah, picking up in chapter 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, it says, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He'll see his offspring prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he'll see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. Divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for them. Would you bow with me as we uh, desire to come before the Lord as we take the cup? Father, we thank you today again for an opportunity to come before you and to, to enjoy the, the time of fellowship and, and, and what you purchased for us with your blood. It's this recognition just in the, the simple element that draws our attention to the cost of the payment of sin, for without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. And Father, we're very grateful for opportunities that we have to, to come and, and get things right, to enjoy before you uh, this forgiveness that comes at, the, at such a great cost. And so we bring before you uh, at this time a quietness that we can examine our heart again and understand the, uh, the cost of our, of our own sin. We thank you for your son. We thank you that he is now seated at the right hand of you and he makes intercession for us. And Lord, we're so grateful for that. And we thank you that um, we are the beneficiaries of that. And so Lord, in that understanding and in that joy that we look forward to in seeing our redeemer and having the one who will be the only one there with a perfect body who has scars so that forever we can see the cost of our own sin and his joyous giving of his own life. So, Father, we're quiet before you now, and we bring before you these things and come as we should before your table. Father, we identify today that shed blood. We understand that is what it costs to take away our sin. We've come in repentant faith and ask you to forgive us. You have the power to redeem. You sent your own son to die in our place, and that substitution provided the, the satisfaction for our sin, and for that we are so grateful. We wish to come and have fellowship with you, to leave with the joy that comes from worshiping in, with clean hands and a pure heart. And so, Lord, Today, we thank you for your forgiveness, for your Holy Spirit's work and stirring up in us uh, those things we need to bring before you. You're faithful that way. For this, we're grateful. I pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for his sake. Amen. The same way it says, took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take the cup element. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, I say to you, I'll not drink this fruit of the vine from now on until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We're going to get to celebrate this in the kingdom. It's just such a joy to think about that and what that's going to be like inside an unnumbered throng of people worshiping the Lord around his throne. But that's our promise. Coming back, you'll see me again. We'll drink this with you again. And it says, and after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so we're going to.
close with a doxology. If you'd like to stand with me, if you don't know it, it's easy uh, tune to pick up. It starts like this. Praise God from whom all bless. joy of being together in fellowship. We thank you for your word which ministers to us grace and peace and hope, gives us instruction and equips us for every good thing that you preordained for us to do them and walk in them. Thank you for the, re, the renewed fellowship, the sweetness of worship around your table. Thank you for the time in prayer which makes us all the more keen to do it tomorrow as we did it today. We thank you for the time of worship and music where we proclaimed your name and lifted your cross on high draw men to yourself and women to yourself because of that and father as our hope is renewed and our faith encouraged and strengthened father we go out and we carry out the great commandment and the great commission we do that so that your name looks glorious we do that in our workplace we do it around our neighbors and and in the restaurants and wherever we are that we might make you look good adorn the gospel and then speak it clearly I pray that you give us opportunity as we go out this week. We're grateful for uh, the chance to live in this time where the, the dark is so great and the light so bright. Help us to make sure we share it. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake and all God's people said. Good to be with you today. Love you guys. Hope to see you this, after, uh, this coming week.